Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Every dumb person in America has suddenly is suddenly behaving like a first-year journalism student and realizing that journalists are biased and that there is no objective source of information. As if this was a really profound revelation. That is Josh Zepps, and this is episode 173 of the Yosha Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. Welcome if you're new. Welcome back if you've been here a while. I'm stoked you're with us. Hope your week is good. Hope your Monday morning is great. If you're in Australia, hope your Sunday Arvo is ace if you're in the States. Uh, this is episode 173 with Josh Zepps. You can find him on Twitter at Josh Z-E-P-P-S. Or if you're in America, Z-E-P-P-S. Same letter different name. Thanks to everybody that supports the show uh, on Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. If you get to the end of this show and think, you know what, that show was interesting. It made me think about stuff. That gave me some value in my life that wasn't there before. Perhaps you would consider throwing a buck or two or five the way of the show because uh, I, I can't make this show without your help. I need your help to make this show work, and that means uh, being able to employ Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Haley Van Spania, my project coordinator, who's able to uh, coordinate all the interviews and the people are coming over to the house, and Andy to produce all the shows and make everything happen, and he worked extra hard this week. I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but without your support, I can't make this show. So to say thank you for that support, if you do support for as little as five bucks or any more than that, up to 100, 200 I don't know how much you want to put. You can um, get access to exclusive episodes that only you get. So uh, thank you for all that. And um, this week, though, I, I wouldn't mind if you if you 
did me a big favor, if you did me a huge solid, if you do like this show, even if you don't feel like donating cash, that's fine. Um, just show someone who's never listened to a podcast how to listen to a podcast. Or show someone who does listen to podcasts, hey, check this one out. This is an interesting one. Just grab their phone, download the app, show them how it's done, and introduce people to the world of podcasts because those who listen to podcasts, me being one of them, are in incredibly devoted to their shows and have their favorite shows, have their days planned. Well, I know I certainly have my days planned around when my favorite shows come out. But something like only 8% of the population in Australia, at least, are even aware of what a podcast is. So there's a lot of room for growth there. And you can help yourself as a listener because the more people that listen, the better content, the better podcasts that will be released, and then the better things there will be to listen to. So let's help each other out. Grab their phone, show them how to download the podcast app of your choice, show them how to download our show, this show would be nice, or tag them in an Instagram uh, post or a Twitter post of this um, uh, show when I put it up there. Whatever it is, share the episode on the share button on your on your phone. Whatever you do, it's an enormous help. It's an enormous help to me. Um, to check in with you, I hope you are well. I've spent the week in Sydney, which has been had an airborne aquatic event, uh, which means there's a lot of rain. Uh, and I will tell you right now that shooting any activity-based reality television centered around romance is very interesting when you're in a deluge. It's not without its challenges. But we had a great week, regardless, uh, shooting Bachelor this week. I had a great day today with Georgia. Um, I know she's technically my stepdaughter, but I refer to her as my daughter. Is that a bad thing? I'll do anything for her. Anyway, let me know what you think. I'd love to know what you'll think. But she's. I, I want to cry when I think about how I feel about her. Stepdaughter doesn't feel right. Anyway. Audrey's really busy at the moment. She's doing make makeup for weddings pretty much every weekend. It's uh, wedding season. So Audrey is absolutely flat out. She's worked every weekend since our wedding. And she's been working on batch through the week. So she's absolutely flat out. So it's me on Saturday sports duty. And I absolutely love it. Um, I love doing the sports runs. Uh, and I love it because Georgia's got really great taste in music. And she likes pop music, which is fine with me. But she also chooses particularly well-produced pop music that has great hooks that are fun to sing along to. That's my favorite thing to do all week is sing in the car on the way to sports with her. It's I love it. I really love it. Had a bit of a challenge with our dog this week though. My other child, the four-legged quadrupedal one. Um, we did a photo shoot for a cover of a magazine which will come out in a couple of weeks from now and um, they wanted a, like an at-home shoot but we live in an apartment, just a humble apartment um, it doesn't look like it would look good on any kind of <laughs> cover of any magazine. So they lined up a, a very fancy hotel in Sydney, the Pier 1 Hotel, which is pretty much Pier 1. So it goes Harbour Bridge, Pier 1. It's right under the bridge. It's incredible, incredible view. And we went in there and they wanted the dog in the photo. So we managed to get the Admiral's Suite, which is, as you can guess, right on the edge, front and centre, top corner of the hotel. All you can see is Harbour Bridge and, and super yachts. And uh, we get in there and there's the PR manager for the whole hotel. She's like the outsourced PR person from a fancy PR agency and she had all the fancy PR lady clothes on and the expensive shoes and the great jacket and she was all over it, two phones. It was brilliant. We had the general manager of the hotel who was there for the you know uh, the day, uh, let us in. The photographer, 
my manager, Audrey. So there's a lot of people in this room. We get in there and it's a dog-friendly hotel. So we get in there and there's even a dog mini bar. It has poo bags and snacks and all kinds of things for dogs. Frankie runs around, does one lap of the, of the hotel. We've been in there for about a minute. He does one lap of the room and then stands in the middle of the room and pees on the carpet. And we're just like, oh, come on, pal. Really? We just got here. Man, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. They all say, me. <laughs> it was an embarrassing moment. But he's a dog. We, he's inside. He's like, what are you guys talking about? I pee wherever I want. I'm a dog. Anyway, um, I've been talking to you a lot about uh, my med situation. Remember last week I talked to you about maybe altering my meds? Well, I saw my psychiatrist this week, saw my shrink, had a chat with him, um, talked to him about, so look, I was doing a lot better than I've been doing. I'm feeling pretty good. And we both laughed because he finished the set. He goes, so you want to come off your meds? Or you want to cut down on your meds. Like he knew exactly where I was going because he must he must hear it five times a day with his patients. He must hear his patients just constantly ask, oh, look, I'm feeling way better. Can I come off them, please? Um, but we talked about it. We had a really good session. We talked for about an hour as we normally do. And, um, you know, he, he really inquired, how am I doing? And he was asking me a lot of questions about how things are. And we talked about it. We, we planned out some strategies for what to do if anything goes amiss. And um, we knocked my dosage down by 20%, which is nice. So instead of taking five pills, I take four. Um, now, it may not sound like a massive amount, but it is significant when it comes to feeling the world in a more three-dimensional way, if that makes sense. It also helps me think a little quicker, uh, which is very important in my line of work. Um, you know, I became a successful broadcaster. It sounds weird to say that, but, you know, I look at my life and I'm like, well, I guess I did. Um because I have this brain that's kind of different, but it it became unmanageable to deal with the speed that I was thinking and the tangents and the length of tangents that I was thinking. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't deal with it all day. Um, but shutting it off completely is... Uh, things get a little dim. So he's aware of that and he's understanding that I'm just trying to get a little bit of that edge back. That has helped me in my career. And so that's why we've only knocked a little bit off the top. Um, it's also experiencing, helping me experience a little more nuance in my emotions. Like the other night I was driving home from work. It's 4 a.m. We're doing these really interesting hours at the moment. So it's 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm driving home on the highway. And I'm doing 100 in the rain. And I just started crying. I started thinking about Audrey and Georgia. I just started, you know, well, when I say crying, I mean... Tears came to my eyes, which is as good as it gets for me. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? What is this? What's this? Oh, it's an emotion. Oh, <laughs> out of nowhere. They're kind of new to me. Um, but I have noticed that uh, the OCD does has been kicking. It's only early days. It's only been a couple of days since I've shifted the medication. So I've noticed that the OCD is kicking in and nipping at my heels a bit. And the obsessional thoughts are, you know, making themselves known. But... um. You know, I've got plans in place as to how to manage that too. Um, so far, it's not so much of a problem. Um, I, I guess I'm sharing this with you because it's important for me to let you know if you haven't got anyone in your life that's living with a mental health situation yet, 
you will, and you probably do, but you just don't know it, but it's a constantly moving and evolving thing managing a mental health situation. You're a constant balancing act. You're in a constant balancing act with benefits versus side effects. And as a patient, as me, as the person living with it, it's important to speak up if your quality of life starts to suffer. At first, I didn't think anything of it at all because, to be honest, gaining a kilo a week, living with the world being kind of grey, was an easy price to pay for not living with the delusions and the paranoia and the horror that I was experiencing. I didn't care. But, you know, after a couple of months of feeling better, it was like, well, what's this life now? What's this life? Because it's important to remember that you're a human being and part of being human is experiencing joy. It's experiencing sadness. It's experiencing pleasure. It's experiencing pain um, in healthy ways. And all those things contribute to making you who you are as a human being and making life a wonderful thing and, and worth it. So in my mind, it's important to keep a conversation going with your doctor and those around you. Um, so yeah, um, in other news, speaking of managing the OCD, I, uh, I thought, well, shit, if I'm going to do this, I'm like, I'm not coming off on meds altogether, but it, it's worth it doing it because it's become a bit of a problem with me. I'm having a real difficulty dealing with how much I'm playing with my phone, a real difficulty. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm disengaging way too much. But fuck, I'm really unloading on you all today, aren't I? Um, I'm disengaging way too much with what's happening around me and diving into that phone to have an anchor. But it's now I'm disengaging with life too often in my day. And so I've downloaded an app to – it's an app blocker. So it, it blocks access to certain websites and certain apps on my phone and also on my desktop computer. So I'll see how that goes. I'll see how – how it goes to see if I can't focus this uh, this brain of mine on getting some work done. Because I think that's the other thing. I'm not really getting other things done as much as I'd like to or as much as I used to. Um, it's a little like, you know, you might just say, well, just put your phone down or just delete them off your phone. Well, it's a little like when I check into a hotel, I get the booze taken out of the minibar. I'm never going to drink it. But it's just easier if it's not there. I'm not having to constantly make the choice. It's easier if it's not there. So that's kind of why. Anyway, fuck, that was a raw one. Hope you're okay. <laughs> if uh, Don't forget, you can always email me, by the way. I've got to thank you for all the podcast, the podsy pictures this week. What's a podsy? A podsy is the photo you take when you're listening to a podcast of what it is you're listening to or what are you looking at when you're listening to the podcast. Um, you've got a couple of great train platforms uh, this week. Um, people looking after kids, people cleaning kitchens, laundry, a couple of great vistas, some folks on a bike. I love the cycling podsies. Um, but wherever you are in the world, if you pick up your phone that you're listening to this on and take a photo with it and just send me that photo, you can tag me on Instagram or send it to me, send Osher email at gmail.com. That's my dog barking. Sorry. Cranky, call it, man. People live here. It's an apartment building. He hasn't figured that part out yet. Um, that'd be great. Send us your email at gmail.com. So let me talk to you about my guest today. Josh Zepps is an Australian broadcaster, very talented Australian broadcaster, and he was based in New York, New York. He now lives in West Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. He has done many things over his extensive career. However, his latest project, which I'm quite jazzed about, 
is called We The People Live, and it's a podcast focused on making debate healthy again. And he goes to point out that he came up with that before Trump did. (laughs) Now, in the last few years, you may have noticed, particularly online, but elsewhere as well, especially in politics, but more and more, anytime there's any broadcast opinion, that reason, debate and discourse have pretty much vanished from the public space. Opposing viewpoints get shouted down from polarised positions, utterly disregarded purely because they came out of the mouth of someone who identifies with a different part of the political spectrum than you do. And this is, it just stagnates us. It stagnates us and allows us to not move forward. So Josh is one of the people, but I think he's doing it quite well. He's trying to bring debate back, healthy debate. And he often has viewpoints on his show which are confronting, and some of them you'll hear today. But Josh is able, in a very skillful way, to moderate the conversation in such a way that despite when I listen to it, my initial knee-jerk reaction, oh my God, how can you say such a thing? I'm able to then see past that into the deeper concept behind what that person is talking about. I go, well, yeah, you might have a point. And it's important to consider that some of these folks might have a point. So right up front, right here, I'm going to tell you that in this conversation, we will use words and phrases that cover concepts that you might not be used to hearing and, in fact, might even make you go, (gasps) because we're just so trained lately to react in such an intense way to some of these words and phrases. To talk about the problem with debate, it's also important to talk about the different parts of why debate is broken, and part of that is observing our initial reactions to hearing concepts and hypotheticals that aren't entirely unimaginable but are still confronting to hear. For example, you might want to believe climate change is a hoax because it's convenient to you. It is very fucking confronting to listen to something about climate change. And, it, you know, there is incredible evidence that you personally may be affected and, and, and being able to listen to the confrontation of your initial trigger and then pass that to hear about why it's important to talk about these things, it's important. You'll know what I'm talking about when we get there. You'll get it. But if you have any issues, I'm open to it. You can talk to me. Of course, send us your email at gmail.com. I'd prefer it if you emailed me because trying to have any conversation in 140 characters on Twitter is, well, won't work because I'm not on Twitter this week too much. So I highly recommend you check out Josh. Find episodes, particularly find episodes that he's guested on other people's shows, Uh, particularly the episodes he's got on Joe Rogan's incredible podcast where he and Joe just get digging. They dig deep and then they dig a little deeper and it's fantastic to listen to these cats just go for it. I'll say it up front, this is a heavy political conversation, but it's one I feel that's healthy to have. And I don't mind if you do this one in chunks. You might need to do you know, do, do five minutes of it here, then go check out an episode of The Dollop. Then come back here, listen to five minutes more, then go listen to Will Anderson and Charlie Clawson. You can find Josh on Twitter. He's at Josh Zepps, J-O-S-H-Z-E-P-P-S, or Z-E-P-P-S, depending on which side of the Pacific you're on. We did record this conversation over Skype, so a massive thanks to my audio producer, my podcast producer, Andy Ma, for chopping it together and making magic out of a dog's breakfast of audio files. We kept getting interrupted by Josh's building's fire alarm, so you won't hear that at all because Andy Ma is good at his job because people support us on Patreon. See what I did there? So enjoy this conversation. It happened over Skype, uh, so whatever you normally do when you're in Skype, I don't know, do that, or maybe don't, especially if you're driving. Um, and enjoy this conversation with Josh Zepps. Mm-hmm.
Well, hello, Josh. Welcome to the show. Hello, mate. Why, thank you so much. I'm enjoying a delicious coffee here in sunny Los Angeles. It's very, uh, it's, very it's nice and warm today. Listen Josh to me, and listen I, drink. Jo- Josh and I are connecting over a Skype call. He's recording from his end, <laughs> I'm recording from my end. And he happens to have uh, the most ironic coffee cup on his hand. He has the smiling George W. Bush photo, the one that used to be at the airport to greet you when you yep. came home. I bought this in Washington, D.C. on the evening of George W. Bush's second inauguration in 2004. Uh, at, uh, oh. It has the, the, oath of, um, the oath of office printed on one side, the White House in the middle, and then George W. Bush's handsome mug on my mug. Was so, it uh, from a street the best seller? Mug or in the history you... of the world, Osher? Yes, it was. Yes, it was, was it from the a best street... mug was ever. It... Was it from a street seller or was it from a, uh, a, a shop? How dare you imply that I would buy anything other than authenticated, legitimate George W. Bush paraphernalia. This was a legitimate <laughs> shop in Union Station in Washington, D.C. Oh, not, not paying those, uh, those. And, a and penny less I, than I know it's full of coffee right now, but if you could just mm. hold it up to the ceiling and read what it says on the bottom of it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to read that. Made in? It doesn't actually say. Oh, you know why. But George W. Bush was not a free trader, was not an anti-free trader. He wouldn't have minded. He wouldn't have cared. He would have been let let the let the yellow people do it, and he probably would call them yellow people. You know, <laughs> down know, the ranch. Let's be honest. He would call them little yellow people. Let's little yellow. <laughs> yeah, he loved them though. They were good. He liked them. He liked brown people. He liked yellow people. He actually. It's funny that, and we can get to politics later. But it's funny that at this particular moment, I have a little bit of wistfulness for the George W. Bush administration. Never thought I'd hear myself say that, but in comparison it's, to current times, I'd take it. Is I. I can't even believe it. Having lived in America through uh, three years of W, um, yeah. it even the, and that being the like a, an election that was nicked, an election that was fraught with you know he wasn't the one running the show, but it was all Cheney. You know, it was all might have even been a test run for what's happening now in in many ways. Didn't you hear uh, George W. Bush was interviewed recently, and uh, he said uh, of Donald Trump. I don't care for the racism. That was his take. When his hot take. When George W. Bush calls you out mm. as being racist, that's <laughs> yeah. That's it. Reminds me of one time that I went to a, a record launch by Tommy Lee, the drummer from Motley Crue. Of I, I um I went to a record launch of his hip hop side project, Methods of Mayhem, mm-hmm. where. Uh, Tommy was the beat master and his MC, uh, uh, a wigger, was with him. And uh, I was out and it was back in my drinking days, Josh, and I was I was partying fairly hard. And at one point, Phil Jamison, the lead singer of Grinspoon, was there and he turned to me and he says, man, you're really fucked up. Now, when Phil Jamison yeah. from Grinspoon, a man who's on his passport, his application, his occupation says, I party because I'm a rock star, says you're mm. fucked up. You're fucked yeah, up. Yeah, you are fucked up. It's a, it's a little like Alan Jones saying that you're a conservative radio host. Am I right, people? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Nailed that gag. So Nailed I would have, that gag. I would, I would have got through who you are in the intro, um, but, uh, and then Indeed, how we know each other. In the hear this, they will already know that. They will already know you. They will already know well, you, they might which not- will be lovely. How much? But see, now you could put anything on at the beginning and I wouldn't know what you've told them about me. It could include all uh, kinds of fictitious things, like my role uh, in faking the moon landing, for example. Well, I have left out your rodeo career. Um, 
<laughs> My but, time as a deep sea abalone fisherman. Yeah, well, these things do tend to distract from your your current work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I frankly am feeling a little bit proud of myself right now, uh, Osher, because uh, I'm speaking into a beautiful microphone, and I don't imagine that most of your guests with whom you have to Skype, who are not there in the flesh, in your actual pad, have audio quality even remotely as crisp and delightfully clear as the one that you're hearing right now, nay, across a sea. The largest True. of the yeah, seas, and you are speaking, the largest of all the you seas. Are, yeah. It's, it's not so big, it's an ocean. Uh, you are yeah. speaking into the, the Shure SM7B, which was uh, previously my favourite microphone, um, but it was also see, Michael see Jackson's favourite vocal previously. mic of choice. He says previously, because he, now he has to prove to me that he's gotten a better microphone. What do you, no. All right, lord it I over used, me, I'll show Go on, I bring used it on, to do, bring it on. I used to do I'll my, be your microphone punching bag. I used to do all my voiceovers on it because it was primarily I was doing uh, broadcast from my house. But now yep. I do so many voiceovers, I have been required to get a more voiceover-friendly microphone, which mm. is this one that you can see, the Microtech Gefell, which is uh, a beautiful piece of German engineering. Um, I, uh, um, I'll tell people when we do the intro, but I will tell you to your face how much I enjoy We The People Live and oh, having you. known you for the best part of 12 years now. Well, at least. It's 12 years since we did Idol. Yeah. And it's more than that since we would have bumped into each other on occasional voiceovers or whatnot, yeah. probably. We were working together in uh, on Idol. On a, you were working on a backstage show on Idol. And, um, and I do remember you were coming back and forth through America quite a bit. Mm. What were you doing there at the time? Uh, I just wanted to live in New York when I was in my 20s. I, I went When I was in high school, Fair enough. Uh, I took a year off before going to uni and backpacked around the world, as you do, as Aussies do, as all, Aussies, as all good Aussies should. And I got to New York, and I'd always, like, a hero, my heroes were all New York-based-y people. Uh, Letterman, even, like, Carson back in the day. Like, I'm a big fan of, like, old-school American broadcasting, of, like, the old original Tonight Show. I love Woody Allen, and, and I was just a sort of, yeah, I, I, an aficionado of the late-night genre. And I loved Conan at the time and Letterman. And went, so I got off the plane, uh, literally just went to Times Square because it was the only place on a map of New York that I, whose name I knew and intended to spend a week or two in New York and ended up spending a month there and totally fell in love with the city had the number one ticket to Letterman's show, literally number one of all, because I'd, I'd like sent off for it in the mail 12 months in advance and vowed to myself that at some stage in my life I would come back and work in broadcasting in some capacity in New York. And um, came back to Australia, went to uni, did communications at UTS, journalism, philosophy, that sort of guff, uh, and went into radio because I figured that Radio was where jobs are, and journalism was an easier way to make money than being a stand-up comic and thanklessly touring from yeah. town to town and staying in yeah. flea-ridden motels on beds covered in semen. Uh, and I just felt it would be better to work. <laughs> and it's worse when it's not your own semen. That's yeah, the that's worst right. part, I Well, it hardly ever is. It's always... It depends on the quantities <laughs> that we're talking about. But basically, uh, I went into, I went into to radio and... At yeah. the time that I went to the States, I was actually working on uh, Mike Carlton's show on 2UE, 
doing funny voices. I'm I'm good at impressions, so I'd be doing impressions of John Howard and Alexander Downer and Kim Beasley back in the the Howard years. Uh, did a show down at the Melbourne Comedy Festival called The Howard Years, featuring the Alexander Downer Jazz Dancers with uh, me and my improv comedy buddy, Ed, Ed Cavalier. A lot of people might know Ed from uh, various, yeah. various Every other... Every swear to ad ever. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Fucking sell out! Uh, and, uh, Mate, uh, he's got a kid on the way. He's, I know. Come I know. on, man. I, uh, I empathise. I was actually just uh, Skyping with him yesterday. Um, and uh, I said to, to Mike one day, I really want to do more improv. The great Rob Carlton uh, had been my improv coach at uni. You know, Rob, uh, Osher, because you very kindly did an episode of my podcast when, when I was in Sydney in yes. December. I'm doing, I'm doing a gig with him tonight, in fact. Oh, fantastic. Say good day to him. Yeah, for yeah. Me. I'm doing a storytelling, a storytelling gig. Where's that? Uh, Giant Dwarf, where everything happens. <laughs> That's the same place that we did our episode of We The People At. Uh, yeah. And um, and I, so I wanted to go and study improv at, at the Upright Citizens Brigade at UCB Theatre, which is um, one of the kind of iconic, legendary improv places in New York City yeah. that was set up by Amy Poehler yeah. and is a kind of, you know, Tina Fey-affiliated sort of Saturday Night Live-implicated yeah. um, hothouse. And so I, I said to Mike... Carlton, for whom I was doing sketches that were syndicated on um, Southern Cross Radio and the Fairfax Radio Network at the time, uh, why don't I just go over there, you sponsor me for a foreign correspondence visa, and I'll be in New York on New York time, which means that I'll be able to read the Australian newspapers when they come online at like midnight or one in the morning Australian time, which is nine in the morning oh, New York time. Good pitch, good pitch, I'll Josh. I'll work through the night... I'll write sketches, yeah. and then when you get to work for you, because he's on the air at uh, 6 to 9 or 5.30 to 9, when you get to work at 3 or 4 in the morning, I'll already have a sketch for you. You send me back the, the script with your amendments. I'll record it in New York, email the audio files to the technicians at 2UE. They'll cut it together, add all the sound effects, and it'll be ready to go after the 7 a.m. news, and it'll be topical for that day instead of being one day late. So he, uh, being a kind gentleman allowed me to do that and for the sub for the next i basically spent my the the bulk of my 20s living wherever i wanted in the world phoning literally phoning it in (laughs) uh and doing sketches thanks to to the thanks thanks to garage garage band and free wi-fi and coffee coffee shops (laughs) that's basically it so i went to in 2005 i lived in copenhagen in denmark went to copenhagen business school and did a graduate (sighs) Uh, semester there, which was fantastic. And then in 2006, uh, a mate of mine, Chris Culvener, who was working at Fremantle uh, on Australian Idol, was in charge of their digital division. Now, nowadays, a digital division sounds like something legitimate. But in 2006, young children, uh, digital was not a thing. Digital was like, there's this thing called the internet, and lots of companies want to know what to do with it, and nobody knows what to do with it. And his idea was, Let's do a little backstage idol show where we kind of play pranks on the judges during ad breaks and interview the idols before they go on and tease Andrew G, as he was called then, about his hair. Uh, yeah. And I was in San Francisco at the time, actually, pitching some, uh, some stuff to uh, Al Gore's new channel, Current TV, which then became Al Jazeera America, yeah. which now doesn't exist anymore, uh, pitching them political satire. And uh, Chris called me and said, mate, 
I've got this low-budget little thing I want to do for Idol. It's only going to be 12 weeks of your time. Would you come back to Australia and host it? Because I know that no one can, no one can present it with precisely the level of stupid antics that you might be able to. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I bit. I thought, yeah, I sort of equivocated for a while. And it was like, I don't want to go back to Australia and, like, I don't know, be Andrew G's bitch. Uh, <laughs> but went back you and did, this, though. did you this delightfully fun, like ludicrous, and no one was paying any attention to us, as you'll remember. On, no, and this was at there a were time, musical numbers. There, there were, was musical numbers. <laughs> there were musical numbers. We were teasing. I mean, because it was only online, they, I mean, we would sometimes, they would sometimes show the highlights of, of backstage clips on the main show in order to drive people to the website. But most of what we were doing was online. And at, in, in that day and age, nobody gave a shit about online or knew knew that it was even there in terms of the big head honchos of the network and, and the production company. Yeah. So we were basically unsupervised children producing five to ten minute episodes of Idol Backstage and doing whatever we wanted with it and had an absolute blast. And that was, yeah, I guess that was, that's a long-winded way of uh, explaining where you and I first crossed paths. Truly. And, uh, well, I like the, the idea that you found a way to do what you want to do and you found a way to live the way you wanted to live and enrich yourself further by living in different parts of the world, um, finding out a way to pay your bills that nourished what you're good at and allowed you to do enough of what you're good at to keep you interested. Um, I, I think that's a really you know inspiring lesson for, for a lot of people uh, who, who'd be listening. Um, I'll have to already told everyone about We The People Live, but I was thinking, as I was listening to some, I, I have an hour and 10-minute drive to set mm-hmm. where Bachelor is, so I just com- I consume podcasts, you know, enormously, and I, I hate it when I run out. Uh, <laughs> Me too. When I, I run out of my shows. You know, you're like, it's the gods and things are back for another three days. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, but I consume a lot of We The People Live, and I thought that, you know, as we move into this Trumpian era, that you'd be a really great person to talk to to give people perhaps a primer on the new landscape in which we are consuming the media. Mm. And, uh, like, for, for, the, for example, the other day, I had to explain to one of my co-hosts on the radio what an SJW was. He, he didn't know, and I guess if you... These, these sorts of things and, you know, the names of them might not be in the mainstream media yet, but the behaviour of these people most definitely is and that if we talked about a few of these things that it might be quite helpful to some people, maybe even young people, uh, certainly old people, to get an idea of what they're looking at and what they're listening to. Would that be okay with you? Yes, that is absolutely okay with me. All right, excellent. So let's talk about... Let's talk about the, 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 the two things up, up, up the front. The number one thing, I guess, that the Trump administration has been accused of is gaslighting. Could you be so kind as to explain what gaslighting is well, in well, the best way you can? Well, now you're using terms that I don't even use. I, don't even, I, I see gaslighting getting thrown around, but you explain to me what gaslighting is because that's not... Here's the other thing. I actually usually object to buying into the terminology of, of, the, of the opponents. So, like, SJW is not something that I really use... Uh, the regressive left is another popular term that I don't really use. Uh, fake news is certainly a term that I no longer use. Everything gets co-opted yeah. by the by the people against whom the accusation is being made as a bullshit way to deflect attention from what they're actually doing, and make right. it, and it's the it's it's what I call the I know you are you said you are but what am I tactic of political right. you know uh, um, agitation. 
So what is gaslighting? The way I've heard gaslighting explained is that you, Josh Zepps, are there in Los Angeles, California, and, and you and your fella are walking along the beach, and the two of you see a whale. And you think, that's amazing. Look, I just saw a whale. How's that? It's a whale in the sunset. That's lovely. And as you walk a little further along the beach, you bump into uh, Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump, and um, uh, Mr. Breitbart, Steve Bannon. And you say, hey, we saw a whale back there. No, you saw a rock. No, 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 we saw a whale. No, 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 you saw a rock. In fact, it was the best rock ever. It was a massive rock. It was a big rock. There's lots of rocks around this area. No, we didn't see a rock. Yes, you did. You should be afraid of rocks. Rocks are frightening. Rocks don't belong in the ocean. The rocks are there. And then you turn and you go, maybe, maybe it was a rock. I guess, I guess we saw a rock. <laughs> and gaslighting is getting you to question your own ability to see what is actually happening in the world and trusting the people who re- basically are saying, they're saying so convincingly what they saw, you actually start to question what you saw and you then believe them. And the more they do it, the more you rely upon them for your facts. So your ability to see what is and what isn't disappears and you are then enslaved to their ability to uh, basically tell you what they want you to see. Yeah, that's interesting. It's also, it also raises the question of, I mean, I think this is then a subset of the whole fake news conversation, right? So fake news came about because in the run-up to the election last year, there were literally like Macedonian villages full of teenagers and dudes in their early 20s pumping out completely made-up news stories simply to get clicks on Facebook so that they would make ad revenue. Uh, this became a big thing where there was the, the, the people were consuming and sharing uh, just tens of millions of times news stories that were completely fabricated. And the ones that happened to do the best usually tended to be conspiracy theories against Hillary Clinton. Uh, so for whatever reason you want to... You know, I'm not casting aspersions on Trump voters, but when they, when they would try out, when they would do A-B testing of which, uh, of which bullshit stories get spread around the most, it wasn't ones about Bernie Sanders. It wasn't ones that would be shared by Bernie Sanders supporters that were getting, uh, uh, that were getting shared, and certainly not ones about Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, targeted at Hillary Clinton supporters. It was ones targeted at Donald Trump supporters... Or or people suspicious of Hillary Clinton that were getting shared. So this became a major problem, right? The idea of there being news that was completely made up. The the fact that these that this sort of dovetailed nicely with a bunch of suspicious stories about Hillary Clinton that had been leaked by WikiLeaks via Moscow uh, after the Russians had hacked into the Democratic National Committee emails and leaked embarrassing emails by from Hillary's staffers, from John Podesta, one of her senior campaign uh, managers, that were so sort of embarrassing and, and tawdry that they actually led to the they forced the resignation of the of the chairwoman of the Democratic National of the Democratic Party on the eve of the uh, of the convention of the party's convention, which is the, supposed to be the moment at which you anoint the, the the presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, meant that. There were months and months on end when the Clinton campaign was just embroiled in the constant whiff of scandal, none of which was particularly uh, valid or particularly condemnatory or, or damning in any meaningful way. But the fact that newspapers would every third day seemingly have a small article on the front page about some new embarrassing thing that had been found in, in her uh, colleagues' emails and sometimes even her emails added to this, to this sense that... Um, yeah, that she was that she was the corrupt one, and that Trump, whilst a an, an aggressive buffoon, was at least legit, and you'd be able to you'd be able to 
trust him in a way that you couldn't trust the the sneaky nefarious Clintons with their Clinton Foundation charity money coming from Saudi elites and strange. I don't know, conspiracy theories about FBI agents who'd been investigating her turning up dead in their apartments and things. So this weird kind of, this weird dovetailing of actual fake news from Eastern European uh, uh, fake news outfits with uh, Russian-backed leaks into the Democratic Party with just generalized internet bullshit, which we've all come to expect from Twitter and Facebook, led to a climate where people were very concerned about trying to distinguish between legitimate news and news that shouldn't be taken seriously. And into that climate, onto that beautiful plain of the savannah, marched, marched, I almost said George W. Bush because I'm drinking out of his cup, marched Donald J. Trump and began to deploy the same term, fake news, against basically any allegation that he didn't like or any publication that was investigating him as investigations should, such as the Washington Post and the New York Times. So now... Fake news has become this kind of punchline that gets used by the right to refer to the mainstream media and to engender a complete mistrust of all information sources. It's almost like, <laughs> I was saying the other day, it's almost like everyone, every dumb person in America has suddenly is suddenly behaving like a first-year journalism student and realizing that like journalists are biased and that there is no objective source of information as if this was a really profound revelation. Yeah, everyone has their personal biases. That's true. Every journalist has to pick what stories are important and what ones aren't important. Nobody has the capacity to report on absolutely everything that's going on in the world at any given point in time. So we bring to our reporting uh, a a judicious means of trying to, to split what's relevant from what's not relevant. But you try to do that in ways that are either honorable or dishonorable. And to simply say that because no, because there is no such thing as a perfectly objective news outlet, that means that all news outlets are uncredit, should be discredited, <laughs> yes. is a crazy fallacy. So when you talk about gaslighting or like the, the, the constant stream of bullshit that is coming out of the White House at the moment, I mean, from just little things like Trump claiming that it was about to rain on his inauguration, but then when he started speaking, the, the, the sun came out, when in actual fact it actually started raining just as he was speaking, to him saying that yeah. his inauguration was the most attended of any inauguration, when in fact it was the least attended. To I mean, from petty things to big things like, uh, you know people in his administration having to resign over over having lied about their having met with russian secret secret servicemen i mean i don't think the i don't think the purpose of all this is to actually get people to believe the lies my concern is that the purpose is to to call into question the very idea of truthhood and falsehood yeah and i think that's and to get people to think they're they're all everyone's so rotten that it, you know it's not that you don't. It's not that you cease believing that you saw the whale and you start believing Steve Bannon that it was a bu- beautiful rock. It's that you no longer care about whether or not it was a ra- whale or w- whether or not it was a rock because you're so worn down by the constant bullshit that it it, it ceases to matter to you what is true or just. Yeah, it's uh, the idea- and that's a big worry. The idea of uh, being up against the ropes, Muhammad Ali hits you hits you so many times. The bell rings and you have to wait for the referee to tell you which corner to go to. Yeah. You're just that punch yeah. drunk. Yeah. You don't. You're just like I'm. Just going to stand here. Yep. I'm so confused. I'm just going to wait till someone tells me which way to go because I am. I've been hit in the face that many times. I don't know where to go. Yeah. And I, I you know, even just explaining it the way you just did gives, uh, you know, from from my mind, it gives a, a perfect. I, 
you know, thing to, to look out for. I mean, I saw just today, I put it up on Instagram. There's a uh, Australian hip-hop band called AB Original. It's a couple of indigenous guys. They um, they just won a music prize, $30,000 music prize. Cool. And uh, using the same photo, I'll hold this up to the camera, you probably can't see it. Using the same photo on the same, the same, uh, the same, um, exactly the same format of Facebook ad, the Guardian's headline reads, Australian Music Prize, AB Original becomes first Indigenous act to win $30,000 award. All right? Exactly the same photo. However, color corrected so it's black and white, so it'll look more scary. It's two uh, Aboriginal guys um, sitting in the front seat of a car. The Australian's headline reads, Album containing a song attacking Australia Day wins national award. <laughs> exactly the same story, but just depends how you tell it. I love that that's, you know? the, that's the only pertinent piece of, rel- of, of information for the editor of The Australian. The fact that there was one song that attacked Australia Day in it. That's all, you really, <laughs> yeah. that's all that you need to know. Like, that's actually the headline. Yeah. Anyway, I was just going to go on a rant, on a rant about The Australian. Well, well, we'll get some ranting at the end because I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, and I'm grateful we're talking this week because what I want this, our conversation to lead to at the end is I'd love you to talk about... Um, and we'll get there, but we're leading towards how One Nation and Libs are getting into bed with each other and mm-hmm. what that's meaning, and that One Nation and our polling higher than the Greens in Australia and what that's, what that's meaning for our country and what we're... So that's all pointing in that direction. So let me ask you about the, the next thing that we hear a lot of is uh, dog whistling. Mm. Yeah, so a dog whistle... In, in your mind, what do you think... What is that? A dog whistle is when you say something that sounds like it's not bigoted but you're framing it in such a way that people who are bigoted will pick it up and hear what it is that you're throwing down. But if you're not clued into that lingo or that mindset, then it might sound perfectly innocent. Therefore, it's a dog whistle in the sense that a dog whistle is a whistle that people can't hear and only dogs can hear. Uh, So a a dog whistle might be, for example, a a reference to... uh, female genital mutilation in the Muslim world. And that might actually be a way of talking about banning Muslims from entering the country uh, because it's the... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Kind of, it's one of those tropes that gets trotted out a lot by people who believe that there's a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West. Uh, so there, are, you know, there are, there are ways of talking. You, you might be talking. You might be talking on the surface about the barbarism of extremely conservative Muslim societies, but what you're actually saying to the people who can understand the code is, we don't want any Muslims in this country. <laughs> um, so, I, I think of one thing that happened in the last two weeks. I mean, something. Again, it's 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 nine eleven every hour with Trump. Um, on what do you mean by when that? he did put, 
<laughs> in that every day, everything is code red, you know. And I, I remember when. Oh, you mean in his mind, everything is everything is like an emergency. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that the the press is reacting as if it's nine eleven every day? You know, everything's a national emergency. Um, uh, the other day when he put the the travel ban out, the Muslim ban, when he put that out, it was Holocaust Memorial Day, and the dog whistle uh, accusation, in my mind, would be. Uh, the Holocaust was terrible. A lot of people suffered. Never said the word Jews. That's right. And he did say that, actually. They, they, he didn't mention Jews. Yeah, he, he actually removed the word Jews, I think, from the, from the first draft of the Holocaust Remembrance Day text because uh, so they wanted to be more fair and impartial and they didn't want to forget the gypsies and the gays and so on. But, but as you say, yes, of course, that's a, of course that, that gets seen by, by anti-Semites as a nod to them. Yeah, right. Okay, so that 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 is something to look out for. Would you say that that headline I just gave you there um, would that be a dog whistle? What the Australian did? Not really, because I think it's blatant, isn't it? I don't think there's anything. Un- un- I mean, this is what's so sort of quaint about about Australia's media. Like Australia, the, Aussies are Aussies are good at just being upfront racists. You know, no, you don't have to you don't have to hide it. It's, uh, it's just like he, the editor of the Australian's like what. They, they trashed on Australia Day. I'm a proud Australian. Let's put it in the headline. Band that didn't like Australia Day wins Australian prize. It's like everything reminds me of, of, of the Simpsons episode of Australia where, like, you know, they go to, oh, I'm going to tell the Prime Minister about that, and they walk around the corner and there's a billabong with a dude, in a, a dude just floating in it drinking a beer, and they're like, Bob! And he's like, I can't believe this is an outrage. It's like every cliche about, about Australia gets confirmed when I pick up a copy of The Australian. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's, become, this, it's become this quite, uh, quite openly ignorant paper. Like, it's not even that bigoted a thing. To, it's not even bigoted. It's just sort of... It's almost proudly populist in a in a very in a in a way that that is designed that is calculated to appeal to simpletons. <laughs> like, who would read who would read the headline about a band having a song that criticised Australia Day, and not feel a twinge of being manipulated when they're like, "Oh, that's that's an outrage! How dare how dare Indigenous people have a problem with Australia Day?" Like, you'd have to be a bit. Even if you're not the most pro-Aboriginal person in the world, you understand that there is a controversy about Australia Day. You understand yeah. that, that better, for better or worse, even if it was a great thing to do, we did commit genocide and wipe people out <laughs> in this country and we did invade the country, it, yeah. right? It did happen. Yeah, it did happen. So I think there's something almost refreshingly blunt about Australia's attitude towards this stuff, whereas in, in, in the States, I think it gets done a lot more in code, and that's not just on the right but also on the left. Like, as you, you mentioned yeah. SJWs earlier and social justice warriors, a lot, more, a lot more is under the surface, especially when it comes to race and, and, and ethnicity in the States. Well, well let's, let's go there because that's the thing that uh, – and it wasn't really until listening to your, your podcast in, in depth when – because you're, the, the idea about we the people live is let's make debate let's make debate great again, and that debate has make debate healthy spun again, itself. Is the, yeah. is the, is the make debate healthy again. Enough, yeah. Sorry, I want to wear a red hat and make <laughs> debate great again. Um, make debate healthy again, because in my in my experience and my my view of what's happening, people spin themselves in circles so hard at each end of the spectrum, trying to be more righteous and more. Uh, in a partisan that they end up forgetting how to even speak to each other or, mm. or, or speak at all. So the the SJW, the idea of the social justice warrior, is um, 
is often the thing that is lambasted on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, for example. Uh, the Greens may say something along the lines of, um, I don't know, hey, how about we uh, just don't dump all this coal dust on the Great Barrier Reef that brings in jillions of dollars worth of tourism every day. And the front page of the telly will read, left loony bin plan up in smoke, puff, puff greens, want to do some, you know. <laughs> That's literally what it would say as well. It would, it would, it would I mean. even just it trail actually off. Said it would that. say, <laughs> it'd say puff, puff, and then there would be just be an ellipsis and it would be continued page 23 and then there'd be another ellipsis and it would say poof poof pa uh yeah i don't know um the social justice warrior where did the social justice warrior come from where did when did you get to stop being you know what i'm a human and i care about other humans when did that have to become well i wouldn't just see here's the problem i wouldn't dismiss the i wouldn't dismiss the existence of a problem with social justice warriors the problem is that it's a bit like what i was saying earlier about trump co-opting fake news the term social justice warrior, which was a derisive term for people who are incredibly fixated on microaggressions and identity politics, right? There is a class of people. I mean, there is a legitimate problem, I think, of, uh, especially on Twitter and social media, people hunting around for things to get righteously outraged about and willfully taking people out of context in order to get angry about things and... and uh, kind of value signify. I can't remember what the what the um, sociological term is, but it's something like oh, virtue signaling. That's right. You, you you sort of signal your own virtue to the tribe by pointing out how another person has transgressed. So, you know, if if I if I send a, a tweet that is only 140 characters long, so I can't explain all of the context, people, but just t you know, I'm, it's something that has to do, say, with race relations in a film that I just saw. It, it might be easy to to intentionally take that out of context and make it seem like I have trip, triggered a tripwire, a racial tripwire, and I sh I'm therefore, I don't know, a white supremacist or something, or just a smug white liberal, uh, lefty in, in American parlance. Uh, and the, the, the problem of people kind of, of the left sort of eating its own tail by trying to be ever more self-righteous and e ever more committed to trans trans african american feminist rights or whatever is an actual problem the uh, but what's happened is the existence of that problem has then given license for the the andrew bolts of the world and the steve prices of the world to tar everybody who has uh, a heart and who cares about equality with the with the label social justice warrior as if that alone is enough to dismiss all attempts at um, at making people equal and and all references to identity politics. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think the the broader the broader problem that you're sort of pointing to, which covers a lot of these definitions that you're bringing up, is the isolation of all of us into thought bubbles of of yeah. agreement, where you know people who take it for granted that identity politics, people on the left who take it for granted that identity politics is the most important thing. In other words, that that feminism, qua feminism, is the most important battle to fight. That tra that gay rights is the most important battle to fight. That Aboriginal rights is the most important battle to fight. And that these things, and 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 people who sort of ignore that these things are all interconnected, and that that actually fundamentally we should treat each other as individual human beings who have rights and aspirations, and should care about one another, and not be warring tribes. Yeah. That, that that becomes just as much of a kind of comfortable swamp to sit in as right-wing conservative thinking is. And, and when you say, like, 
make debate healthy again is the tagline of my show, which actually, by the way, predates Trump's slogan. It wasn't. It wasn't intended <laughs> to be a riff on "Make America Great Again." It was just make help make debate healthy again as as a as a response to all of these stupid talking heads that you see on Sky News or on CNN who are just spouting yeah. platitudes and canned phrases at one another, and that's what that's what debate is. I I was in Athens yeah. last year and wandering around the Acropolis uh, and uh, and stumbled around the the agora you know the place the, the sort of birthplace of democracy where people would come and when they had disagreements they would gather and they'd shoot the shit and they'd sort it out and that was where democ- where western democracy came about and i thought how far we've come or rather how back how far back we've gone <laughs> since yeah. then and what constitutes debate now is two people with rehearsed slogans Kind of just speaking to each, speaking at each other and without listening. listening to each other. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. What happened in 2016 between Brexit and Trump and the rise of One Nation in Australia and the rise of uh, the far right in France? Now it looks like Marine Le Pen could actually win the French election. Is, yeah. I feel like there are two kind of groups of people. Where, you know, we've got one foot on a on on one barge and another foot on another barge, and they're drifting apart, and we're all going to end up in the lake. And and part of my show's conceit of making debate healthy again is to try to have to try to speak in ways that make the people on one barge actually hear the people on the other barge. The Trump supporters actually hear yeah. the 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 um, the lefties, or I don't know what to call liberals in Australian parlance. But no, 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 no. And and, and we should we'll, we'll we'll get to that. I do I do want to do want to get to that in, in a moment. But it, it, you found a way to certainly just then describe, <clears throat> I guess, my enormous frustration with. The left or the more um, humanist uh, uh, side of politics. I, when the uh, Australian election was on last year, I did the ABC Vote Compass. I did it twice. I did it eight weeks apart, and I actually drifted further to the centre um, over the two the two times, which was very interesting. I'm, actu- I'm actually far fur- far further right to the Greens than I realised. I was I was really quite surprised by that. And I'm I'm way closer to the Labor um, than than many things I thought of, and and much closer to the centre than I than I believe. But um, w- what really frustrates me is that the people with what I see is the the people on the left who do have the ability to actually get things done seem to be not locked in a race with that person over there wants to lock up children and put them on a horrible you know island in the middle of the Pacific where they will rot uh, you know forever forgotten because they're refugees. They want to. They, they they instead are engage in a battle with the other lefty person, in a race to see who can be the most righteous, as if they're yeah. trying to ascend to purity before they can even speak anything. You no, know, and I mean it, it just stops everyone in their tracks. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the conversation around Islam is probably the most famous example of uh, of this, where you have people like Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist and philosopher um, who, who I'm friends with and whom I very much admire. And I'm very jealous of that. Fucking uh, hell, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he, he has a... a if, if you haven't heard my podcast, which I assume most of your listeners haven't, um, a fantastic place to start would be episodes, I think they're 52 and 53. Just Google We The People, all one word, with a hashtag in front of it, or just Google We The People, Zeps. Um, Zeps and um, and Sam Harris because that I'll put a link on it. Don't worry. There are a couple of episodes where he was um, he and Joe Rogan and me and the and the comic Hannibal Burris got into an argument about identity politics and and race, and this is one of those areas which which very much like uh, the problem of of Islam 
is so toxic and so fraught with uh, with with tripwires that even to even to broach the conversation is just not worth the hassle for most people. Most people, you just have to pick a side. You either have to be with the, for example, Black Lives Matter movement and believe that there is a massive epidemic of racism in the American police force, and most cops will take any opportunity they can to shoot black people uh, on a whim, or you have to believe that. Uh, and and concomitant with that belief is that there are there are no real problems in black communities that aren't caused by white supremacy and by oppression from from white policing, or you have to believe that blacks bring everything on themselves and police are just innocent people who are doing their job. And uh, if you don't want the police to be there, then they're our bravest and finest people. So you know, uh, let's see what happens when they no longer police your crime-ridden neighbourhoods. Obviously, the truth has to be somewhere in the middle. And similarly, on on Islam, on the left, there is this mandatory conversation about how Islam is a religion of peace. That doesn't fly when everybody who has eyes and ears can see that there is a civil war at the far fringe of Islam that is cracking the religion apart uh, between Islamists, jihadists, and the vast majority of peace-loving Muslims. To ignore that war... And every time there's a terrorist attack to come out, as Hillary Clinton did after the Orlando shooting, with her first remark being concern for America's Muslims that they were going to be retaliated against by anti-Muslim bigots, rather than concern for innocent Americans who are just out partying at the hands of Muslim terrorists, it strikes me as as misguided and we are going to lose we on the left broadly are going to lose the, the these battles if we continue to be hunkered down in these kinds of of groupthink so if people don't know sam harris they might know bill maher who has a, a late night show over here he also speaks out for individual rights in the muslim world and calls for a reformation in islam and acknowledges the problems of conservatism in 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 islam whether that's its treatment of women or its treatment of of gay people and it's very, very difficult to skirt this line between not trying to buy into Islamophobic bullshit that you hear from one nation versus nice, obfuscatory pieties from the, uh, you know, from the apologists for for Islam on the other side. And I don't want to, I don't want to empower religiously conservative uh, male Muslim leaders to oppress innocent Muslim women as they do throughout much of the Muslim world by pretending that there's not a problem because otherwise I'll have my liberal card revoked. But that's what's happening. When you talk about the fact that the amount of energy that liberals, that lefties expend on criticizing each other for being insufficiently virtuous, this is one of the main areas where that happens in issues of race, ethnicity, and religion, where if I, like even just what I said, I will get people on Twitter calling me an Islamophobe for gen- for overgeneralizing about, yeah. about Islam. And they would be better spending. They would be better off spending that time attacking actual Islamophobes than trying to figure out whether or not I have put my finger in my eye by accidentally admitting something that everybody knows to be true about Islam. No, but not all of Islam is is the thing that not all of know, Islam. No, no, yeah, but we no. But what I'm that, saying guess, is no. What I'm saying I'm diagnosing a problem with a, pro- a problem at the fringe of Islam, but that is a problem with Islam because. Yeah, there is a struggle for the heart and soul of Islam going on at the moment, and what we need are are brave Muslims like Ayan Hirsi Ali and uh, Majid Nawaz and and so on who are speaking out about the reality of of this crisis at the fringe of Islam. So I don't have to keep adding the qualifier 
not all Muslims. I take that as a as a given. Yeah. But you know, if there's a uh, if there's a cheese board and the very edge piece of cheese at the far edge is rotten, then you have to talk about the problem of the cheese board. Next on why Muslims are like cheese with Josh Zeps. <laughs> uh, um, I guess that's the that's the reactionary SJW within me going, but, but, but yeah, wait, 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 exactly. it's not all of them. No, I'm thinking, what about my friend Wempy? What about my friend Rima? You know? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm anti-religion in general, so this is not a this is not an anti-Muslim thing. I think um, I, I, I regard religious people as a little bit like smokers. They are in the grip of uh, of an addiction that they cannot help. So I don't judge them, but ah. I do think that I do think that the that 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 uh, the habit or practice of venerating faith over reason and venerating dogma over rationality it, it causes a lot of problems in the world and when i say religion i don't mean uh, a sense of wonder or respect for the cosmos and uh, humility i mean uh, a belief that one of the that an ancient book was written by the creator of the universe and that that one dogma is is more right than others that my pretend friend is bigger than your pretend friend yeah. and my pretend friend says i can do this so sucked in yeah that's right which you know is kind of weird uh on the other side of things and because i don't really spend much time uh over in you know heavily what right-wing forums the uh the rwnj the right-wing nut job is there also a race on the right to be um more hardline as there is on the left yeah, I think yes, I think that the that the left's obsession with identity politics has allowed the right to engage in identity politics of its own and in other words in favor of white western masculinity basically. And you know, you saw that a little bit well, it's sort of interesting. It's like the provocateurs are getting rewarded. There are people like the the more I, don't, I haven't never really thought about it the way that you just asked the question. It's an interesting question. Like, is the right getting more extreme? Yes, they are, but I think it's um, I think it's purely nihilistic and retaliatory in a way. It's not like the like the left is the left is becoming extremely obsessed with uh, with minority group justice, and I think that's what lost them the election last year because it doesn't appeal to people who live in rust belt towns where the steel factory has closed yeah. uh, who are white who don't fit, who've had their, their wages have been stagnating since the 1980s and people are leaving town and there aren't really any opportunities and there's an opioid ep- epidemic because a lot of people have you know invented back pain so that they can get disability payments and as a result they're able to get prescription opioids which then turn into a, a habit and yeah, these are, there are a lot of places in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania that are not a lot of fun. Mm. And to have Hillary up on the stump wagging her finger and surrounding herself with a Benetton ad of politically correct um, African-Americans and Asians and, and, and brown-skinned people and trans people and uh, this is the new America, you know, she got a fuck you from, from those white working class uh, people. So I think part of the extremism on the right is really just a rejection, a rejectionism, like your world of elites and your globalized world of internationalism and elites and people who go to Davos and people who work on Wall Street and people who are friendly with people in in the corridors of power is not a world that resonates with us. So here's a big F you and we're going to go our own way. And I think now that's becoming, I read a a piece uh, shortly after the election saying, 
which was sort of by a white nationalist addressed to the left more broadly yeah. and saying, listen, we didn't invent identity politics, which of course is not exactly true because white people have been playing identity politics for centuries, uh, aka colonialism and uh, slavery, Jim Crow, genocide and so on. But this person was saying, in my lifetime, we didn't invent identity politics. Like, I was perfectly happy for everyone to be equal, but but if the left is going to play the identity war, then it shouldn't be surprised if it loses. It might just lose. If you want to, if you want everyone to be grouped as warring factions of uh, of minorities who are fighting against the white man's supremacy, then don't be surprised when the white man says, "Hey, I'll think about myself as an ethnicity as well." And I'll think about my rights as pitted against your rights if we're going to treat this as a, as a zero-sum game. So part of the right-wing nutjob phenomenon that you allude to is, is being ever more audacious and shameless and brazen about asserting that right, which I think is incredibly dangerous because I think if the world becomes uh, yet again what it has been for so much of history throughout the centuries, which is warring factions of, of tribes, then that is not that is not going to be a pretty place. No, no, it won't be. <laughs> but thankfully, the, thankfully, though, the weapons are of such a technology that the war will be very short. Well, it depends who's got... <laughs> yeah, it depends who's got the weapons and who's got the balls to use them. The problem at the moment, uh, which, I, which is a problem that's diagnosed by, the, by white nationalists and I don't think is a, is a meaningless problem, is that their fear the, fear... the fear of the most reasonable Trumpers... Who, which I can empathise with somewhat. There's a lot of Trump that I cannot even begin to fathom. But the, the aspect that I can empathise with somewhat is the decline of Western civilization sort of narrative. The, the sense that yeah. the only people with the balls to defend anything anymore are fascists and Islamists. And, right. and Western effete left-wing elites have sort of given up the fight for, for liberalism and given up the fight for Western civilization and will allow themselves to just gradually be co-opted by massive populations of traumatized uh, Islamists from Islamist refugees and that, that we will die not with a bang but with a whimper. And if it is with a bang, it's not going to be us doing the banging. It's going to be someone banging us, pardon the sexualized nature no, no, of that, that's, that phrase. But, that's fine. But you can, under, you can imagine when you talk about the, the threat of modern-day uh, weapons... It's re- yeah. it's realistically not going to be the West who is going to be nuking anybody anytime soon. If someone gets nuked in in the next decade, it's going to be because, let's face it, hang on, politically correct alert coming here because a Muslim did it. That's interesting. Probably. While or Putin. Well, it would be horrible. It would be horrible if that happened. Yeah. But it would also be horrible if the opposite happened, just in case. Yeah. It would, absolutely, yeah. Um, which I I am also quite fearful of. You know, I'm also quite fearful of. Um, you think that you but, think that a country, you think that a Western nation, would launch a preemptive nuclear attack? I think the horror, horror, horror scenario is. A uh, dirty bomb goes off somewhere in the West. Um, the person stands up and says, I'm this person representing this country. And then in the next 36 hours, anger is so high, everyone goes, yeah, fuck yeah, do it. Well, that's sort of what and I was afraid it. of after 9-11. I mean, I was impressed by the restraint 
shown. Obviously, that restraint didn't last very long because then they went on to Iraq. But I was impressed. I don't know if people remember that in the in the weeks and months after nine eleven, there was nothing. There was nada. There was uh, you know there was no yeah no instantaneous retaliatory response. Although the Onion did have a good well that that we knew of the guy they get that guys were in there. Yeah, the uh, the American yeah. special forces were in there, of course, of course. Um, but it wasn't certainly like. And the uh, forecast for Kabul: forty five hundred degrees Celsius tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The Onion had a had a, the satirical newspaper had a good headline uh, in September of two thousand and one, uh, which was uh, uh, Bush asks. Uh, Bush asks Al Qaeda to form country he can go to war with, or something like that. You know, it was, it was like it was, it was touching on the fr- the frustration of doing <laughs> frustration of being the world's greatest military power without an actual country to fight. Yeah, uh, which is which is understandable. I mean, my nightmare, my night. Look, in your thought experiment, it's still the jihadists who who struck first with the dirty bomb. But yeah, I, yeah, my. My sort of nightmare war scenario has more to do with a misunderstanding between Russia and the States uh, because I think Trump is being played by Putin and doesn't know that he's being played by Putin. And I think Putin's playing a game of three-dimensional chess and Trump is not even playing checkers. I mean, Trump's just riding around in a clown car tooting a lot Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and and enjoying enjoying the borscht that... Putin is sending over. But you can imagine, for example, Russia doing to uh, Lithuania or Latvia or some other NATO state what it did to Ukraine, which was not a NATO state. In other words, not actually invade it, but sort of send in, foment an uprising that it needs to send yeah. peacekeepers in, in quotation marks, to, to, to help with. And all of a sudden, there are people who aren't, who speak Russian and look suspiciously like Russian soldiers but aren't in uniform, they're wearing black, and they're helping out in this country. And before you know it, the country is sort of occupied. And then the danger of having someone who doesn't know what the fuck foreign policy is in the White House is that he could then turn around, realise he's been played. Putin could miscalculate uh, the likelihood of Trump's acquiescence to this sort of thing. Trump could get angry and send in forces to liberate that country because it's still part of NATO and someone once told him that NATO was important and so he flipped his mind back and decided it was important today. Uh, yeah. and, you can, and you can imagine that and you can imagine them being off to the races and, the, the, and conflagrations like that are the ways that you know, World War I started and if World War I happened today, then you would use a nuke to, to, to end it. Uh, that, that's what sort of keeps me up at night. Let's let's talk about one more frightening thing, and then we'll try and turn the corner and try and drive this baby home with a bit of a smile on our face. Right. Um, when you when you look back at Australia from Los Angeles, and when you see, uh, you know, the the rise of One Nation, uh, still I kind of live twenty one years on, and I do radio in Brisbane in the morning, and without fail, at least once a week on the phone, someone will call up. Like, because this, this is the part of Australia that elected her back in. Mm. Um, 300,000 or so people in Bean Lee around that area voted for her in. Uh, I think it's Bean Lee. I might have got that wrong. Um, but they're from Brisbane that voted her back in. And they're our listeners. And occasionally they'll get on. And I have had to temper myself because I've realised that me getting upset at someone who is... Uh, Pauline Hanson, One Nation supporter, all that's going to do is is rust their justifications on even harder and make them want to punch even harder. H- how do you see 
in Australia, how would you start to speak to someone who feels disenfranchised, who feel who sees these terrifying things on their Facebook feed, and then someone comes on the news and says, I'm the one that can solve it, no halal, oh, great, I'll vote for her. How, how would you even talk to that person about perhaps another reasonable option? Well, I think you have to... You have to start by meeting people where they are, right? So condescending to them is not going to help, and getting angry at them is not going to help. Uh, no, I found that out. Yeah, <laughs> it felt <laughs> good. My, uh, it felt good for a my while. Tip to you as a broadcaster. Then my program director went, "Could you not yell at our listeners, please?" <laughs> uh, I mean, I would start by acknowledging the kernel of truth in 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 their concerns, right? Like I. Pauline Hanson didn't come from nowhere, even 21 years ago. Australia had been a very white place for a very long time. Not as long as it was black before it was white, not even close. <laughs> but it, was, it had been a very white place within the living history of everybody. And then in the 80s, it became a very different place. And, and people throughout the 1980s literally saw their neighbourhoods in, in places like Cabramatta in Western Sydney and so on change from being essentially all white into essentially all Asian. And there was a consensus under Hawke and Keating that we didn't talk about that and that to raise the question of whether or not high rates of Asian immigration would be destabilising was too politically incorrect and that made you a racist. Well, surprise, surprise, when people can't talk about things and when people feel like there isn't a forum in which to make debate healthy again, people, uh, they erupt and something explodes. And, and Pauline Hanson was the result of that back then. Now she is just a different incarnation of the same shtick and the, the taboo that people feel anxious about breaching but nonetheless worry about is the Muslim taboo. And I think there are, there are two... Uh, parallel concerns here which too often get conflated and which part of my mission in life is to get people to think about separately one is uh do muslim communities integrate as well as other communities and will they become westernized as well will they will they join will they jump on board the liberal project and you know will they will they quickly have enlightened attitudes towards women and gay people and and so on uh and then the second is a security question Will we increase the risk of, uh, you know, more Lint Cafe massacres or, you know, uh, a kind of a Paris attack in Australia by allowing in more Muslims? And I think those it's important to keep those two things really separate because they're actually different sub-communities of the Muslim community. It's not usually the same people who are deeply conservative who are also going to be committing terrorist acts. Terrorist acts get, tend to get committed by, uh, you know, rogue rogue actors who are not traditional pillars of the, of the Muslim community. Uh, I think explaining to people that we we felt anxious about the the arrival of all kinds of other communities in the past and we and they have all successfully integrated into Australian society and made Australia a richer and stronger place is a good is a good place to start and they will provide you with all kinds of reasons why the Muslim community is different and some of those reasons might be somewhat valid. Maybe Muslims are more religiously conservative and more more insular in in terms in, in some ways. But I usually retort by saying that I'm the one who has faith in Western civilization that Muslim families who come here and attend our schools and watch the ABC and participate with us and come to Barbies, we will win them over. (laughs) We will win them over to our way of life. Don't worry about that. Uh, 
that doesn't mean that they'll cease being Muslim. They'll just become Muslim Australians, just the way all kinds of Muslim Australians, Australians are, and it'll make them better and it'll make us better. But ultimately, you have to accept that that is something of an act of faith because we don't actually know for certain. Like, the One Nation supporters could be right that the Muslim community just hunkers down and becomes somewhat like the Muslim community in the suburbs of Paris where it's riven with unemployment and fails to assimilate into, into wide mainstream French uh, culture and becomes ghettoized. Like, that would not be a good thing for Australia. So I think you can acknowledge that. And then on the, the second question of security, you can point out that it's much more likely that people who want to do us harm are going to come in on student visas or they're going to come in under the visa waiver program. They're going to come in and they're going to do it. It's, it's, it's not likely that you're going to have long-term multi-generational jihadist networks that, that the Australian federal police and Australian culture is incapable of, of thwarting. So I know, it, I know it sometimes feels a little bit frustrating to have to sort of reach across the, 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 the aisle and take seriously positions that you feel like are, are just coming from a place of bigotry. But when you remember that they're basically coming from a place of misinformation and fear with a, with a, with a little dollop of truth embedded within them, then I, I, think, there, I think there is a, a common ground. So what do I think of Australia when I, I come back? I mean, I, to be honest, I actually think it's, it's in a pretty healthy place comparatively when I look at other places around the world and when I come from the States. Yeah. I... I I just am impressed, I'm constantly impressed by Aussie's ability to be blunt and bullshit free about things, our ability to talk to each other, our ability to not go off the deep end or take anything too seriously. And I just, I, I, I have to have faith that, that One Nation voters are, rather than embracing hate, what they're actually doing is expressing frustration in the same way that I was talking about the American right doing a little bit earlier, that they, that they yeah. are completely unrepresented by both sides of politics. This is as much as anything a protest yeah. vote. And they're right about that. that. You know, I was on Q&A last year and Penny Wong and Alan Jones were on the, on the panel and Penny and Tony Jones was asking me about um, Donald Trump and I was saying that, you know, I, I, had, I remember watching Penny Wong when the Labor Party was opposed to marriage equality, on Q&A, being asked about it, and having to pretend that she, an, an open lesbian in a lesbian relationship, was opposed to marriage equality because that was the, the party line. And she's like, I, I said it was like, she's, it was like a, watching a gazelle on the African savannah in a nature documentary who's stuck in a mud flat and flailing around. And Trump is essentially the, the, the lion on the edge of the, the mudflat, who says, I'm just going to devour them all. Look at these stupid loser flailing lions, these politicians, these phony bankers, these assholes who've been ruining everything. They've been cosy with each other for so long. They're here on Q&A. You know, if he were here, he'd be saying this. They're here on Q&A pretending that they don't believe in gay marriage, even though they're in a gay relationship. Give me a break. There is so much phoniness and so much BS you know, Trump may lie, he may be outrageous, but at least he at least he tells you he's lying. At least he lies to your face. He doesn't lie in a back room and then stab the Prime Minister in the back and ascend to become the leader of the party as one Bill Shorten. Bill Shorten, it's interesting, isn't it? He always just happens to be standing in the room when someone gets knifed. I'm not saying he did it, but it's a little bit Richard III that every time he's around, he and someone ends up falling, and now he's the he's likely to be the next prime minister the all of these machinations i think people just go for one nation because they think everyone's so full of shit 
Like, yeah. love, love her or hate her, at least Pauline is just a regular person who speaks her mind. And there's something appealing about that. Uh, that and that is the thing that people on the radio say, I hear, it. well, she's just saying what we're all thinking. Yeah, and even if she's not saying what, if she, even if she's not saying what we're all thinking, she's saying what she's thinking. And Penny Wong wasn't saying what she's thinking. Yeah. So let's talk a little about about gay marriage in Australia. Do you think? Do you think it could possibly? How, how will it happen? When it happens, how will it happen? Oh, I mean, I think it'll just be so anticlimactic when it does happen. I think they'll just. There are already the votes for it in Parliament. All they have to do is hold a free vote, and it would happen. It's simply because Malcolm Turnbull did a deal with the, with the right-wing faction of the Liberal Party in order to give him power and agreed that they'd go to this ludicrous plebiscite idea, uh, which, frankly, I think the Labor Party should just have let happen. Uh, you know, elections have consequences. You lost the election. Uh, the party got into power. The plebiscite's stupid, but, you know, they won. Just do it. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a bit petty uh, to hold it up. So... I mean, I th- it's one of, the, one of my great regrets and embarrassments about Australia. Like, you know, when I first came to the States a dozen years ago to spend any time longer than a holiday, Australia was a place to be really proud of coming from. It was a progressive country. You know, we really, it, it, it felt like, I don't know, it, it felt like the kind of place that America wishes it were. And now, yeah. now that place is New Zealand. And Australia, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Australia seems like, this big lumbering kind of lost older brother to New Zealand, which has its shit together on so many issues from climate change yeah. to gay marriage to clean energy and clean agriculture and so on. And Australia's just kind of wandering around, digging more coal out of the ground, still banning gays from loving each other. So it's just like, I don't know what's happened. You know, seven prime ministers or something in the past nine years. Is that the stat? I don't even, don't even remember. But something, something, something like that. It's not good. Yeah, so it's not good. I was, bit- yeah, I was I was in New Zealand last year actually for you know a, a family member got married uh, and he married his husband and it was like well, what the fuck we have to do it over here I know you know <laughs> it's crazy it's crazy so I don't know yeah. I don't know why I mean yeah I was talking to Alan Jones about it after Q and A actually because I my first job in radio was um, my first main job was was working for Alan Jones and he and I are still mates and he was saying. Listen, it's three words. It is three words in the Marriage Act, and that's it. You just have to strike three words from the Marriage Act, and that is the entire process. You don't need a plebiscite. You don't need to spend $100 million. It's ridiculous. Just let him vote. And I say, here, here, Alan. Let him vote. But is he talking about man and a woman? That's four words. Uh, well, no. the and a woman. Well, and a woman. I guess. Right, just between two people. Yeah, yeah, I think those were the three words that were added. And yeah, I man, think it was added woman. by yeah. Howard, right, in 2004. This is not even... So, this was... Yeah. The only reason it's set up this way is because there was an active anti-gay uh, attempt to, to include that. Like, this is where the libertarian in me just comes out, like, just gets endlessly frustrated. Like, if yeah. someone isn't doing... If something has absolutely no impact on your life, don't fucking do anything about it. Right? Don't stop other people from doing things that has no impact on your life whatsoever. Yeah. I was uh, uh, hoping, hoping to round the corner and, uh, and come out smiling. Um, <laughs> why should... Why... Okay, Josh, just before we go, why should we be hopeful? Why should we be hopeful for the future? Why should we not just die in this nihilistic bath of self-loathing? Well, um, I think Western civilization is robust. 
I don't think anyone's ever made any money betting against the United States of America or betting against its resilience. Uh, its institutions are strong. It still has an independent judiciary. Trump will come and go. They have term limits. At worst, he can do eight years' worth of damage. And, you know, the if you want a real glimmering kind of beacon of hope if you're on the left, the one thing that I do think about in terms of American politics is if it were going to come to pass that there would be a resurgent left-wing movement in America uh, that could be led by a younger, blonder, more blue-eyed Bernie Sanders who would come along and actually bring introduce European-style, Australian-style uh, social democracy to the United States, you could imagine that a necessary precursor to it might be a catastrophically bad ultra-conservative government like Trump's that would galvanise everybody about how awful that option is and swing people back. I mean, America's a pendulum. You know, th There have been horrible times before. If you went back in time to 1968 and JFK had been assassinated uh, a few years before and uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and Malcolm X was assassinated, the war in Vietnam was raging, body bags were pouring home, uh, uh, you know, the university campuses were ablaze, you would have a sense that there was an, that the United States was in a much more of an existential crisis, I think, than we do right now. Uh, it recovered. It got better. It will recover. It will get better. Um, I think the only thing that, we, that all of us have to do to make sure that that happens is be responsible and caring and, most importantly, think assume that other people are coming from the best place that they can and try to understand where they're coming from and try to correct them if you can, but don't be a dick about how much better you are than people on the other side because you, you're probably not. They, they, they think you're a dick too. But that, but that works That works for both left and right. Yeah. 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 Try to understand where other people are coming from and try not to be a dick about it when you disagree with them. <laughs> <laughs> There's your slogan. Josh Zepps, 2020. <laughs> try not to be dicks, humans. Good night, America. Try not to be dicks. <laughs> uh, Josh, I couldn't be more grateful for your time today, man. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a great honour to be on your show. I love it. That was Josh Zepps. You can find him on Twitter. He's at J-O-S-H-Z-E-P-P-S or Z-E-P-P-S. Uh, you can find his podcast. It's called We The People Live. Highly recommend it. Uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for sticking through it. If you like this show, please do consider supporting the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osho. Rewards start for as little as five bucks a month. But if you don't want to do that, that's totally fine. Uh, I would ask this week that you simply just grab... Another person's phone, with permission, someone you know who either doesn't listen to this podcast or doesn't listen to podcasts at all, and show them how to download it and show them how to listen to it and introduce them to the wonderful world of independent digital broadcasting because here we are. We are in the future already. I'm off to spend my first ad, my first app-blocked evening here at home on a weekend with my wife and kid and see how that goes. I love you so much for listening. Thank you for being with me on this this journey because we're all here together hope you have a fantastic day or night or morning or whatever you're doing right now i hope it's all good man oh that's the front door i think someone's got a takeaway i think our dinner's here that's good news 
I love you. Thanks for listening. Till we talk next week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.